0: From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set, On this episode, I speak with Dr. Jeffrey Gertner, the Johnson & Johnson Distinguished Professor and Vice Chair of Surgery for Innovation at the Department of Surgery and the Division of Plastic Surgery at Stanford. Dr. Gertner graduated from Dartmouth College and the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine. He completed his general surgery residency at Massachusetts General Hospital, his plastic surgery residency at NYU School of Medicine, and received advanced training in microsurgery at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. In April, he visited Madison to give a Grand Rounds talk on entrepreneurship and how the clinical experience plays a critical role in the business world. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Gertner, welcome to Madison and to the surgery set. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. This is a great pleasure to have you with us. I think you know, we have been really trying on the surgery set to focus on innovations in surgery. It's one of the things that I, th- I find most exciting to talk to people about. And you are one of the, uh, the kings of innovation in surgery. So maybe just to start by telling us your trajectory. You started as a surgeon, and now you're an entrepreneur and a scientist,
1: yeah, I guess I'm kind of a reluctant uh, entrepreneur. I kind of got in it uh, into it from the back door. You know, originally, I, like most people, went into medicine with the idea that I was going to help people and went into surgery because I liked the tangible feedback of doing something active to, to help people. And kind of assumed as I went into my surgical training that by the end of it, I'd have learned a set of skills that if I was, you know, very scholarly and learned them very well, that I would be able to take care of the majority of patients and problems I saw and, you know, several years into my training I realized there were just a number of problems that weren't yet solved. And there were a lot of patients out there that had really no good options for treatment, and that led me to science, Um, and so I, again, never thought I would be a scientist, but I got interested in trying to use scientific investigation as a way to develop uh, new approaches, new cures, new, uh, you know, ways to uh, take care of patients with problems, and that took me through probably the first five years of my faculty career, and at that point I thought okay I have some interesting things in the laboratory I'd like to see if they work in the real world and kind of hit a wall because it was difficult to do within just the walls of academia and, and that kind of led me to you know investigate how to work with the private sector to you know develop uh, innovation and you know, by happenstance, you know, that required me to learn the skills of an entrepreneur and kind of become someone who was familiar with uh, the private sector. And and that's taken me to where I am now. But I, I think the fundamental uh, stimulation or the impetus has really been wanting to help people that
0: don't have great options. As a surgeon, we're trained to sort of deal with the mechanical effects of injury. But I've always thought the way that we approach medicine and the value we bring to the business world or to sort of innovation, I guess, is that we actually have that clinical experience of taking care of patients. Like we can put a name on the problem. Mm-hmm. In your experience transitioning from clinical practice to the sort of business world, how has your clinical perspective really informed the work that you do on what is at this point very pure basic science in a way. Well
1: I think uh, it's critical uh, having that that clinical
0: perspective and
1: to a large extent you know it's a major reason that I continue being a practicing surgeon is is as, as a surgeon you you every day see hundreds of things that aren't done as well as you would like and you see lots of patients that you wish you had better options to take care of and you know, that's really a privilege. Uh, you know, in that biodesign program at Stanford, you know, engineers and business people clamor to join that because they're allowed to go into the operating room for a period of time and and see these problems. But, you know, for someone like me, it's it's kind of, I'm inundated with these problems. And then it becomes really a question of which one to work on. But I think the clinical perspective is, is critical. I think it's more important than the scientific perspective because I think, Many innovations have come from things that aren't necessarily hard science or deep science and, you know, certainly medical devices. Tom Fogarty with the Fogarty balloon catheter. He was a scrub tech at the University of Cincinnati and saw an embolectomy which was done open with, you know, a huge long incision and opening the vessel and then sewing it up. And he was familiar with uh, some plumber's tools and kind of said, hey, why couldn't we just do this? And kind of invented it and started doing it. It turned out to be fundamental change in how we take care of patients and led to interventional cardiology and all that. And, and that did not come out of the lab, it came out of the, you know, the mind of a curious clinician.
0: Yeah, that mechanical, tactile right. experience of seeing these things. So you're still a practicing surgeon. Yes. But also now at Stanford, right, in the heart of Silicon Valley. How much does that environment matter?
1: I think critical mass there is important and I think you need some critical mass you know certainly I I was trying to do the same things in Manhattan in the first 5 years of my career and there just was nobody around who had experience who'd ever done it ever talked to anybody who had done it you know, at a certain point, you're like, well, if you want to be an astronaut, you got to move to Houston. You know, kind of thing. Like, if you want to learn how to innovate, Silicon Valley seems like a good place to be, and that was kind of my impetus. And I will say, it, it's you know, has borne out that way. I, I think the the real kind of key components of Silicon Valley are there's a lot of wealth in the area, but most of the wealth has been created through entrepreneurial activity. So it's generally people that were not wealthy who started a company and became very wealthy those people tend to look at their wealth as something to be used as opposed to hoarded and they also are you know very familiar with the risks involved in in kind of any sort of innovation and so they're a very good source of early stage angel investing capital and so i think that's a critical piece and then i think just you know the the culture of having you know a critical mass of of people that can work with you, mentor you, is is really, are the two key components of Silicon
0: Valley. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the innovations that you've come up with and how you've sort of found, they found their way to market? Well, the one that is kind
1: of front of mind for me is a company called Neodyne Biosciences, and it grew out of a, an observation that one of my mentors at Mass General had when we were doing surgery when I was an intern, which was that, the scars in burn patients seem to form in the lines of uh, mechanical stimulation and you know they that's why people get you know contractures around their lips contractures around their eyes because those are very mobile components of the face and subsequently you know we kind of ask the question why is that because it's very different than a piece of leather for instance or fabric you know when you move a piece of fabric either nothing happens or it fails but there's not this active biologic process where you you build more tissue. And so that kind of, you know, has been something we've been interested in for a long time and have come up with devices that can change the mechanical forces so you can actually get less fibrosis and also drugs that can block the pathways um, that will prevent the, the kind of burn scar disfigurement that can occur. Uh, and so that that's you know kind of came out of a clinical observation, some scientific inquiry, and then uh, kind of commercialization.
0: You know, there's lots of other examples like that. Your exploration into wound healing really does sort of span the mechanical to the biochemical, right? I mean, you've got a, a bandage that just takes tension off of wounds, right. and you've also got a medication. Right. Like, how different is that process? Again, it's, I think,
1: a very serpentine path. Originally, we created this animal model where we used tension to make the scar heal worse so that we could potentially screen small molecules or drugs to see if we could block that. As we got into that, it, we talked to a bunch of big pharma companies and they basically said, We're not interested, you know, until you show that this works in humans. So we're like okay, I guess let's go figure out how to do this in humans, and that was led to the birth of the embrace device. Uh, you know, and we did the first ones looked you know horrible, but eventually they were looked like a form factor that patients might be interested in. So we you know even though it was a science project, we decided maybe people would be interested in buying these, and so that led to the commercialization of that device. But we still wanted ultimately to develop a drug. Now, though, that we we had shown that the device worked in humans, there was a lot more interest from investors in potentially developing that drug. It's a little bit like one door closes and another one opens, and as an entrepreneur, you have to be very, very comfortable with almost every door closing, but continuing to search for the one that is open, and, and my experience is if you think long and hard enough you can eventually find the door that will open and and that will lead to your ability to make progress i mean very few things are finally and ultimately killed forever and so, you know in terms of a, of a project and you know if you are on you know onto something you know valuable you eventually can find a way i mean everything i've ever done has not gone the way that i expected but you you have to be able to pivot and be nimble and change the plan and know when to change it know when to persist and and that's not science that's art and i will say parenthetically those are surgical attributes really you know you when you're operating on someone and something's not going well you don't have the option of giving up you have to figure out a way to solve the problem typically you find a way and that's I think, a very surgical mentality, which I think is you know,
0: very, very helpful in uh, kind of entrepreneurial things. Absolutely. What advice would you give to a resident or junior faculty member who has an idea, who says, this is a huge problem that I face every day and I have an idea for a way to make it better, but I have no idea where to begin getting the resources to make that happen? Well I think the first thing is people should think in terms of the problem.
1: One mistake that I myself and you know many other people make is you kind of come up with a first idea, fall in love with it and are very loath to ever move away from that. And mm. and Linus Pauling said, you know, if you want to have good ideas, you have to have a lot of ideas. And I I think the ability to solve a problem with multiple different ways and then find the best solution, I think is is really important at the very early stages because I think sometimes people again get hung up on their first idea and are you know and and maybe that's not the best solution to the problem i think though once you kind of have decided that this is a a good solution to the problem the next steps are really threefold one is to make sure that solution doesn't already exist that you have freedom to operate meaning that if you develop that even if you can't patent it there's not another patent that would prevent you from developing that technology and again it doesn't require a lot of um lawyer time you can go on the USPTO website and there's different search terms and you can search and get comfortable that yeah there's there there without any kind of lawyers involved and then figuring out you know what's the potential market size because you know I think uh, having a realistic understanding of the market size you can then reverse engineer how much you think the development should cost you know many medical devices surgical devices you know the ultimate market size is not gigantic it's not probably billions of dollars it's millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, you know, to really make those sorts of development projects work, you have to, you know, figure out how cheaply you can prototype it and then, you know, figure out uh, how much it will cost to develop it. So I think thinking really early on about the ultimate life cycle of the project will help you kind of not
0: paint yourself into a corner. And did you find as you were sort of developing these innovations, I mean, were you having to look up venture capitalists in the phone book and call people and say, hey, I'm a doctor with an idea? Or did you find people in that world who could sort of shepherd things along and, and run the sort of business side of the operation for you?
1: I think I've, I've done it all the different ways. I mean, I do think that networking, for lack of a better word, again, I'm not a, a business guy, but that's a business school thing that I think actually has some value. Getting to know the local ecosystem of people that invest and venture capitalists, I think... Coming from a surgical background, being at an academic setting, I mean, people will give you a listen, and mm-hmm. I think then you know you need to have a you know a really coherent, pithy way of describing it that I think is understated because the one kind of red flag that most investors will will tell you about is kind of wildly overly optimistic sorts of things. It's kind of a rookie mistake. and so I think, being very measured saying I think this is conservatively we can generate this amount of you know revenue in year 5 and this would be the size of the market and so for that reason we think if we develop it for this amount of money and you know it's all becomes a financial exercise then but I think really having fully baked numbers and what we call principal numbers which are you have some data to support what you're saying it's not that this is going to be the biggest thing in the history of the universe which you know again I think is a is something that turns turns off investors and I find it helpful, you know, as a surgeon, we have a lot of credibility and, you know, there is a history of surgeons being innovators. So I think people will will listen to you. And, and I, I have had situations where we've kind of hired CEOs to go out and, you know, do some of this work, but typically they need us to kind of open the door or identify what meetings to go to. So paying somebody a big salary to essentially ask you questions is not necessarily always the best idea.
0: What's your week like as a practicing surgeon who also has started several companies? I mean how does it, how do you make it all fit? Yeah so Stanford is
1: is a nice place because there's as an engineering school or with an engineering tradition there's this kind of acceptance that people do things outside of academia and so there's the actual policy where you can do um, one day a week of whatever you want. Uh, you know, essentially, it can be consulting, it can be starting a company. And so the way I I, ha- I use that one day a week, so I have Monday and Wednesday are my research days. So I do my lab meeting on Wednesday, and Monday I meet with students or you know other meetings, and then Tuesday I'm in the OR. Thursday I'm in the wound clinic in the morning, and then I have an outpatient plastic surgery clinic in, in Thursday afternoon, where sometimes I do minor procedures, and then all day Friday I'm working at the, the companies, and, you know, if I'm needed, and if not, then I'll stay
0: at Stanford and do academic stuff. Obviously, your lab is running semi-autonomously, your companies are running semi-autonomously, and you're you're dropping in to provide those sort of key leadership moments. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Fantastic.
1: I mean, it's, yeah, it's 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 you know it's it's a challenge. Uh, yeah. And you it know. sounds
0: very diverse, though. I mean, Like you're using all parts of your brain. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. No, it's a good uh, it's a good gig. Well, thank you so much for making the trip out to Madison for joining us for sharing your insights into what I think is sort of a a dream. Probably in the back of every surgeon's mind is to come up with the next Fogarty catheter or you know the next wound healing device. And for showing us that that path is uh, is a real one. This is just a fantastic gift. So thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And I think good ideas come from all different sources and many of them come from pure clinicians. So a resource that would be squandered is if we didn't make it at least a possibility for surgeons to do entrepreneurial things and generate new
0: cures and devices for disease. Great. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Join us next time on the surgery set when I speak with Dr. Christina Lee, who just finished her residency here at UW. Dr. Lee and I have a great conversation about palliative care. How early is too early to discuss palliative care with a patient? What are some tips for surgeons about how to have a palliative care discussion with patients and their families? These are critical questions that surgeons need to learn to ask. See you then, and thanks for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon.